This is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living Catholic, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor at Sacred Heart Parish and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. A couple of days ago, there was a brief report in Catholic World News that caught my eye. It was a brief line that said, quote, At his public audience, the Pope said that hell might be empty, unquote. Of course, it was a headline, so it tries to sum up a story, as well as being a kind of teaser inviting us to read on. In this case, it succeeded. And Pope Francis did, in fact, suggest this. Perhaps hell is empty. Now, Pope Francis operates under a special handicap. It's the worldwide instantaneous communication system we have. Oftentimes, his words end up leveraging way more attention than they deserve. I don't want to speak for the Pope, and I'm not his press agent, but the way the Pope likes to talk is, and his style of speaking is off the cuff, which often provide grist for the mill of misunderstanding, or at least misappreciation. Standing up in front of a crowd, thinking out loud on a topic, the Pope seems to be at his best when he's being spontaneous. He likes to come out, read the crowd, and then talk. Rather than prepared texts combed over carefully before he speaks, Pope Francis is most comfortable in his personable voice rather than his teacher's voice. Or maybe it's the case that being a teacher, standing in a classroom full of students that you've come to know, who've come to know you over time, that he is most living, perhaps that's what he is most living out when he talks. But whatever its origin, he likes to engage his people by his informal style which is warm and wonderful, until he says something a little on edge. He has a homey style. He doesn't quote theologians or complicated texts or some obscure thinker when he talks. He's been a Jesuit his whole priestly life, but he was never purely an academic. Reaching for everyday images or down-to-earth metaphors seems to be his most purposeful homiletic strategy. He wants people to grasp that the faith is available for understanding along the contours of their lives, not only in the pages of library tomes or the paragraphs of the catechism, but reaching for examples can be like reaching for fruit. Once the low-hanging ones are gone, you can harm yourself trying to get to the ones the next level up. And he's done that a time or two. Stepping out onto the stage, he tosses off an example or uses an image that doesn't quite communicate with the force he intends. Or as has happened, he uses a phrase that refers only to the image or sermon that he's giving, but ends up being quoted sometimes out of context, sometimes by those who despise his style, sometimes by those who love his style oftentimes by both at the same time. But whenever it's quoted, it usually leaves behind the context of how it was offered as a thinking out loud reflection on a particular question or a simple passage. Not every pope was this way. Pope John Paul spent several years at his weekly audiences laying out a long series of reflections on human sexuality and a vision of the human person in line with his philosophical reflections as a professor and teacher before he was named a bishop. When he was finished, these talks were gathered and massaged and corrected and edited and then published under the title of A Theology of the Body. They were given as part of his audiences, which anyone could attend, but they were not commented on or highlighted while they were being offered. It took the publication of the book with whatever corrections were necessary to be offered to a wider public. 
In his world of only 30 years ago, the automatic availability of every word the Pope said instantaneously communicated to everyone everywhere was not a reality. There was time to gather up, to take care to express and re-express what was most important and most central according to the Pope's intention. Thus, when John Paul was speaking, he was reading from his prepared text, with which he had spent a lot of time before he came into the audience hall. No extemporeity from him. It was all carefully controlled. But today, when the Pope speaks, at whatever venue or in whatever circumstance his words can go out, they go out to the world in an instant. Every exaggeration or misstatement or misquote or incomplete thought if there are any, they are available for analysis and commentary and evaluation in the moment the Pope finishes. And that can be a severe difficulty for someone who enjoys the freedom of his spontaneity. Maybe he ought to reevaluate what he does and do it differently. Or maybe he should force himself to prepare more carefully, given the severe scrutiny his words receive. Whatever he might do, he seems to be content to keep speaking as he does. He likes exploring with his listeners. And when he does, he invites them to come along, which seems seems to be his intent by inviting his listeners to consider hell might be empty. Back to our first part of the topic here. This notion, hell might be empty, isn't a new idea. In fact, the idea has been proposed by theologians and pastors since the third century. Just a few years ago, there were a series of articles about the idea in the journal First Things, with a number of major thinkers contesting with one another about this idea. It's been around for a very long time. So Pope Francis is not the first person or teacher or the first bishop to mention this out loud. His invitation to his listeners is for them to imagine the goodness of God at work in the world. And God's goodness and for the divine initiative and for our salvation could be so comprehensive and so irresistible that eternal punishment simply isn't an option. God, being divine, could find a way to bring those who have sinned into the fullness of all that is holy, even if we can't imagine how this would happen. Hell still exists. That's a fact of revelation. But God may be so overwhelmingly expressive as his love that the love offered even to condemn souls might cause hell to be empty. That's the idea. It's not so wild, after all. The church keeps a list of those people we know who are in heaven. We call them saints, and they're venerated because they have fulfilled the invitation to find life in God's graces. But we have no list anywhere in the church teaching or tradition of those we know are in hell. There is no canonization, quote unquote, of monstrosity and evil. And while there are plenty of opinions, there's no one the church has authoritatively designated as having gone to hell. Maybe no one has. If they have, we don't know for sure. I suppose you could make the case there are so many, it would be impossible to keep a list. But just note, no one has kept that kind of list. It's attractive that there may be no one in hell, especially on its face. Knowing eternal punishment is not our lot, but that God in all goodness will find us and bring us to himself is the most foundational of our hope. We already profess God to be kind and merciful, willing to forgive and forbear almost any offense. It's not a long reach to imagine God need not threaten eternal, everlasting punishment on us in order for us to come to realize our sin and to respond to God's initiative for grace and forgiveness. Our belief in God's overwhelming goodness could be affirmed by our hope for the eternity of punishment to be temporized by loving embrace. In a recent book, 
This theme has been taken over and worked over by the theologian David Bentley Hart. His thesis is much more than speculation, however. He challenges the traditional teaching coming to us from the fathers and the scriptures and claims the eternity of punishment is not what the scripture teaches and not what the early church believed or taught. Reclaiming what is rightly ours, cleaned of barnacles and dust, of misunderstanding and and misinterpretation, that's what his book wants us to understand better. Hell, according to his opinion, gets a bad rap. So he goes through the linguistic and documentary history of our understanding of hell, and he strives to show how how people unfamiliar with the language and worldview of the past often heard only the most extreme aspects of what was being said, rather than tempering what was being written with a more nuanced interpretation. It would be somebody like a 20th century student, for example, reading an exasperated pastor from the 18th century, looking out over the wreckage of the French Revolution, writing, the whole world is going to hell, and thinking that it was the mind of the church in all of France in all of that time that everyone everywhere in fact, was going to go to fiery Gehenna. After all, he did write the whole world was going to hell, and the student might not know that it was an exaggerated uh, note of frustration and therefore an exaggeration. It's just an example, but Bentley Hart insists there are many cases of misreading that carry on the same type of error from one generation to the next. He insists that it really is the case. Hell is not forever and it's not full. That's in his book. But the most interesting part of the book is the opening. In it, he asks whether we really can defend a notion of eternal punishment for the errors of this life. Is it possible really to condemn, say, Osama bin Laden to unending, excruciating punishment for the evil he perpetrated against his enemies? Without diminishing the evil of his actions, couldn't we agree that there might be a limit to how much suffering is necessary for him to pay for what he's done? Maybe a 100,000 years would be enough, wouldn't it? And a million for Stalin and two million for, for Hitler and three million for Mao? Couldn't we say that enough's enough, even for the most twisted perversions and the most murderous minds in history? Bentley Hart is asking us to consider what eternal punishment really is. Eternal isn't just a long time, it's without end. Is that what we really believe these guys deserve? God's justice requires eternity as the payment for the evil of this life? And his answer is no. Such a system is not just and, according to him, not logical. And, according to him, no one in the past really thought it was either. We've been pushed into a logical trap through some bad linguistics and some sloppy teaching. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, theologians and teachers have to be careful about being accurate because even the smallest mistake in doctrine could cause untold human suffering. The fires of hell for all eternity, Bentley Hart claims, is an error booming its blunder throughout the centuries. Now, Pope Francis doesn't go into all of the complications of translations and quotes and speculations from the history of the church. He simply asks his listeners to imagine God's goodness to be sufficient enough to rescue even the hardest heart and the most recondite sinner. Since God wants to forgive us and has given us the gift of Jesus for our salvation, we might consider God's goodness to be poured out on everyone, even those who approach the gulf of death without a repentant heart. God might have found a way to bring their hearts along. After all, hell is the complete separation from God 
It is that ultimate consequence of dividing oneself from God's goodness and life. Since God is omnipotent and omnipresent, the only way to be apart from the presence of God is to be in the place where he is completely absent, and that would be hell. It would be punishment because separation from God would be apart from the source of goodness and justice and hope and life. As C.S. Lewis described it, it would be the place where we had only ourself and nothing more. We would be in possession of the fact of ourself and nothing else, since everything else inclines us to God. In this sense, then, hell isn't just a punishment, it's also a consequence. Many times we think of going to hell as the judgment to be rendered by God as he reviews our life and our actions. Imagining the just uh, the last judgment as a sort of going through the files, God adds up our faults and our sins. He sees whether we have accepted his saving act and whether we have responded in the sum of our actions. And if we have affirmed the divine initiative in Christ, the scales move and we are rewarded or we are punished. God sends us to hell or to heaven like a teacher in school who goes through our grades and sends us on to the next year or holds us back in the same grade. We're punished for what we've done wrong. And you can imagine the justice of God's decisions. For those whose greed has taken bread from the mouths of children or whose lies have betrayed nations, they deserve the worst punishment. My friend, Father Paul Gallatin, he grew up in a single mother household after the death of his father, in which his mother worked as a secretary for an oil company. This company was absorbed in a hostile takeover, and the new owners stripped the pension fund. They came in and took it. So the secretaries and janitors and bookkeepers had their retirement taken away from them. Father Gallatin always said the justification for hell was the mindless greed of those who used the law to cheat the earnings of the poorest to feed their wealth. The divine punishment should be something awful, proportionate to the misery they brought across generations, right? But it's not simply punishment. It's consequence that's the actual teaching with regard to hell. By that, we mean that hell isn't because of what a person has done, but is the consequence of the person's choosing. It's not like being punished for what you have done, but by being punished by what you have done. Hell is the outcome of our choosing, not simply what's meted out to us. The most, my most common image of this is of someone who begins the f- college football season by lying on the couch beginning the first week of September, watching the games, eating Oreos and ice cream until the last week in January when the season ends. He finally gets up from the couch and finds that he's gained 30 pounds and is flirting with diabetes. He's not being punished by someone because of what he's done, he's being punished by what he has done. His tight belt and love handles aren't there because somebody has done something extra to him. They're the logical consequences of what he's chosen for himself. If we choose to set ourselves apart from God's goodness, hell isn't just the punishment for having done the wrong thing. It's the consequence of what we choose. Separation from God's will results in separation from God. It's that simple. Of course, our imagination is also dominated by our notion that as we die, we come to God face to face and see our lives for what they are. And at that moment, we come to see what we've done and not done in life. All passes before us in the sum of our evaluations and decisions, and we are judged for what has filled our lives. And as a note, just as a matter of fact, 
Those who have had near-death experiences report this experience of seeing all their life pass before their eyes in what they say is in a moment. And yet they see the whole of life in every detail. Whatever takes place at that time, the story we tell is the most obvious. When we reach this moment, our lives are over and there's nothing more we can do. The cast of our lives has been made and we are frozen in form. Who we are and who we have been made into is already done and nothing will undo it. That's the judgment. God's judgment is just because God is all just. And since God is all loving, the redemptive power of God leans toward us. The gift of God in Christ is that we might be redeemed in the love that Jesus poured out upon the world. So even as we come to know our faults and failings in the most intense and complete way, we also are rewarded the goodness of God's forbearance and the gift of the grace of the Savior. All through, Although the evil we have done has shaped us, so also the hope poured over us in Christ has made us acceptable to God. Pope Francis is, is inviting everyone to imagine that God's goodness will be poured out so completely and so thoroughly that even the worst among us and the worst part of ourselves will be able to respond to God's love for us. Jesus' gift of redeeming love should be or could be so thorough and so complete, it sets even the worst among us free to enjoy God's promise of eternal life with him. There is total separation from God. Hell exists. But no one has to set himself apart from God's love as to be held there for all eternity. Maybe there is no one there since God's powerful love is so overwhelming. That's what the Pope is inviting us to imagine. Of course, such a proposal suffers from two slight concerns. The first is somewhat simple. The second is terrifying. The simple concern is what we are to do about justice. That is, what is God to do with those who have made life miserable and awful for everyone. We could point to Hitler and Stalin and Genghis Khan and note how awful the shadow they cast made the world. For their victims and for those who mourn them, where is the fullness of God's justice? Not only that, and not only in the afterlife, what are we to say to those whose lives were immiserated by the murder, destruction, and rapine of these men? By the time Stalin had finished his first round of imprisonment and show trials, the average Soviet citizen was poorer, hungrier, and had less of a future, and shivered in the cold even more than when the czar was in power. What about them and the suffering they endured because of the evil of this one man? Or if COVID was fabricated in a lab, and it went on to cause what millions upon millions of deaths worldwide, what of those who were left behind to pick up the pieces and to make their way through life with those uh, who had died absent from their lives? What of God's justice? This is simple in the sense that we can all imagine how in the eternal gift of the fullness of life in heaven, the questions about justice or injustice that we endured in life will be subsumed in the greatness of God's presence. Like looking back on being pushed on the playground as a child or being the bully and pushing the helpless onto the playground, the injustices and resentments we endured will fade into meaninglessness in the grandeur of life without end in the beatific vision. As David Bentley Hart argues, Divine justice could be satisfied with, say, the punishment that fits the crime, rather than an eternity in separation from God's goodness and the annihilation of the fullness of being in God. Hell could be empty, and since there, there, and still there be divine evening out of the evil done in the world. At least it's possible to imagine. The Pope also wants everyone to imagine the divine gift of God is something more than avoiding punishment. 
If we live always afraid of what we might do wrong, we run the chance of missing the best part of our lives. Being raised in the Latin American church of the 40s and 50s, the emphasis on hell breathed down the necks of everyone. The Pope wants to remind people that there's more to life than avoiding punishment. Like being in school, if you don't realize that you're there to invest in the joy of learning rather than simply to keep out of the principal's office, then you've wasted the whole reason for schooling in the first place. His invitation, as daring as it sounds, is to invite his listeners to consider what life would be like if rather than making an eternal mistake, we were entrusted with our lives to be changed in the daring challenge of making the most of all we have been given. The Pope's challenge isn't the last word, but it wasn't supposed to be. It was supposed to get people thinking. Most of all, it was to go to the heart of the question and challenge the hearers to imagine a new way to live. Or as St. Paul wrote, for freedom, Christ has set us free. From, Pro from Pope Francis's upbringing, he wants everyone to imagine they are freed in order to live as free people. But there is another concern, and it's major. The doctrine of hell is actually more terrifying than we imagine. While we can speculate about what goes on in the final judgment and how God might come to measure our lives, the final verdict of the human soul is tragic and fearful. In fact, I think David Bentley Hart and others have not sufficiently considered it. I think C.S. Lewis is the one who got it right, and it's this. Let us imagine that as we close our eyes on this world and we open them on the next, we see God face to face. And in that seeing, there's no confusion or uncertainty, no lack of information or misapplied preaching. There's only the one who now stands in judgment and God in all the loving divinity that has been revealed. And sweeping the divine hand across the entranceway to heaven, God says, the fullness of life awaits you in all of your mistakes and faults and sins. Christ has died for all men, including you. Come and enter. Heaven is open. In that moment, the doctrine of the church acknowledges that there are those who are in danger of saying, I'd rather be someplace else. We're hard-hearted enough and filled with enough resentment to say and mean with all our intention that it's possible some would opt for hell. C.S. Lewis describes this once in The Great Divorce, his novel, as those who, when they arrive, seek to get away from each other. Once they've been there a good long while, even though they could leave anytime they wanted, they get so far away from each other as they move to be alone, it's impossible to be anywhere near leaving. It's not just fantasy. We human beings really are that preposterous and that damnable. The great horror of hell isn't that it isn't that it is eternal punishment, but an eternal choice. The Pope is a genius at getting people to think. We could use a little more of it. Back in just a moment. Welcome back to our final segment, Faith in Verse, who have a poem today called interconnected. We're all interconnected now, computer to computer anywhere. For the most part, firewalls are gone. We're open and bare. The most precious resource of all amid our human sense is access to the gateways of our programs and documents. Every book ever written or poem declaimed or movie ever shot is a keystroke or two away from our eyes and thoughts. The world lies open, all of its richness available ultimately to us, with hardly an effort, without even a mention or fuss. Except all has become information, and the barest at that, 
We can accumulate like mad, but still suffer from its lack. For no amount of bits and bites, no matter how they accumulate, can overcome the truth that they are empty and insensate. Only a person to person in the gift of self to another are we to find the gift of life, the breath of a lover, which makes life valuable and the means of being here, that we might scale far beyond the canyon of life's tears. That's interconnected. We're here every week on Living Catholic. I hope you can join us in the weeks to come. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.